So I want to tell you the story. Again, we are zooming in on Monday, Thursday. The story of John has brought us to this place that for the next several chapters, we are going to see that which Jesus wants to leave with his disciples, his last will and testament, his final words, what Jesus has to say. So I want to tell you today that story of Jesus. And I want to tell you about his father. And I want to tell you this story by telling you a little bit about my own dad. So... My parents divorced when I was two years old, and I was their only child. I lived with mom, but dad was always an active part of my life. And my mom is one of the strongest Christian women that I know. She doesn't know things about God. She knows God, and she loves God, and orients her life around him. In my childhood, my dad was the opposite. Not only did not know God, did not want to know God, and did not want to have anything to do with God, and scoffed at people who thought that God, or at least the God as presented in the version of Christianity that he had adopted, distorted, and inherited, had come to believe. My dad was a man who was burned by the Christian cultural world in which he was brought up. My dad was brought up in a Catholic household and went to a Catholic school every day of his life. Now, now follow me. He went to Catholic elementary school. He went to Catholic middle school. He went to Catholic high school. He went to Loyola University. He went to Catholic college, all right? And by the time he came to the end of that, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Christian faith. There was a lot of things that brought my dad to that place. Maybe a few examples are pertinent. I think it was seeing his own dad And the way his dad was treated in his church community is somewhat of an outsider. And he never really understood why. He noticed that when everyone would come to communion, his dad would not be allowed to come or would come. He came to find out later on that, unbeknownst to the family, his dad had been married earlier. It lasted nine months. It went toxic quick. I don't know the story. I don't know the woman. But after that divorce, which was not annulled, he married my grandma. And back in the 50s, when open heart surgery was still like big risk, my grandpa had to face it. And because those of you who came up in a Catholic tradition know that once Catholic, always Catholic, the Catholic priest came to see him even though that really wasn't a presence or a purpose in his life in an active way anymore. And in the midst of last rites and deathbed confession, these things were laid bare. And my grandpa was told that if he was to have any hope of inheriting the kingdom of God to come, of going to heaven, should the operation go south, which was really a 50-50 chance, 
He couldn't have a marital life with my grandma anymore. My grandpa survived the surgery. And he continued to live in the house and support his family. But his roommates instead, that made my dad mad. It really set a tone of bitterness in his soul that I think was fueled by other things. He would tell me stories about going to Catholic high school. And you got to kind of hear this as my dad would say it, which is going to be an exploit of every third word. And I'm going to spare you kind of that, but I could hear it to this day in his voice where he would go to this, this, this high school, this Christian high school, and, and it was run by a bunch of Christian brothers who were kind of like pseudo-monks, I guess you could say. Maybe some of you were, were brought up in, in that kind of thing. And there was this one crotchety old guy who, who didn't want to get up from his desk. He didn't want to teach. He didn't want to be there. And, and the way that he would dole out discipline, you got to remember, this is Chicago Catholic school back right in the 50s, Right? He would just shout out from the desk, I could almost imagine, with like the cigarette like in his, you know, in his mouth saying the same thing, going, hey, Gadini, I'll see you on Friday. Hey, O'Callaghan, I'll see you on Friday. Hey, Murphy, I'll see you on Friday, because it was all Italian and Irish in that neighborhood. And on Friday, he would line them up along the chalkboard, because it wasn't dry erase back then, you know, they wrote with chalk, it's an ancient thing. And he would start at one end, this Christian brother, this 50-year-old crotchety guy who, who came to hate life and, and give up his dreams and, 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 and lose hope and everything else. And he would go and kicking and hitting and punching. Because again, this is Catholic school in the 50s, right? When, when, when you could do this kind of thing. And they would talk about how like, the, the game was always to try to get like four or five deep because this Christian brother smoked so much that after like three rounds in, three people in, he was so out of breath that he really couldn't like you know, connect anymore. And that was his impression of Christian leadership. That wasn't the worst. What I would hear my dad talk about most were the nuns. But not in the way you might think. Because like any intelligent human being will inevitably do as they come of age, especially in middle school and high school, is you have questions and you try to make sense of the world as you experience it with the, the testimony of God. And he would ask questions and he would be condemned for them. He would be laughed at and ridiculed and judged for the questions he would ask. He, he, he would be more or less accused of, of, of being someone who must not have faith, who must really not have the spirit of God in his life, who must not be someone who's truly a Christian and be fed what my dad would be called the fairy tale answers instead. And so witnessing what his own family had to go through, wrestling with his own questions that were not even respected, let alone answered in any kind of reasonable or meaningful sort of way, experiencing just what he saw is this fake veneer painted on Christian education by the time he left school. He ran as far away from the church as 
you can imagine, and kind of held it with a certain sense of anger and resentment and contempt. He prided himself as a thinking man. That's his words, not mine. I heard it often. You call him a secular humanist, you can call him a, a scientific atheist, I don't know, call him what you like. But that's my dad. And I love him. My dad, on more than one occasion, would say this. The God I believe in doesn't need to be worshipped. And he would say it with a certain smugness. As though he had really kind of rooted out the true secrets and answers of life. Like he knew. He had the inside scoop. And of course fueled by a life of resentment and hurt and bitterness and anger and quite honestly fueled by the fact that he didn't like church. He didn't want to go. And he wanted to justify himself. The God I worship doesn't need, the God I believe in doesn't need to be worshipped, he would say. And ironically, I absolutely agree with him. And if you think that God needs to be worshipped, I fear you have a misunderstanding of not only what worship is, but who God is and what God needs. And that's why I like this story that opens up the Last Supper experience that I'm going to share with you today. Now, you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like or just listen to the words. Uh, you do you on this, but I'm going to John 13. I'm just going to take the first half. It's all we're focusing on today, the first 17 verses. But just, just listen to this story that kicks off that upper room, Monday, Thursday, last supper experience that Jesus shared with his disciples that we celebrated today. Here's what it says. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Pause. It's the Passover meal. It's what Jesus celebrated that we continue to do in communion. It is the day or the night that he is going to be arrested and betrayed. It is Monday, Thursday. Key in. He knew that his time had come. Jesus didn't get caught unaware. No, he knew that his whole life was leading to this moment. And the Gospel of John has been preparing for it, showing Jesus talking about it every step of the way. The time had finally come for him to leave the world. And now he was going to show those who were his own in the world, his disciples. He was going to show them the full extent of his love by the cross and the suffering and death, but also by these words, these final words that he's about to share. And look at how he begins. How do you begin when it's your final words? Look at how Jesus begins. It says, the evening meal was being served. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And because Jesus knew this, look at what he does. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you're not going to wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Now, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And Jesus asked this, look, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Hold that story right here for a moment and go back to that statement from my dad. The God I worship and believe. How would he say? The God I believe in doesn't need to be worshipped. And I 100% agree with him. And Jesus does too. See, if someone needs to be worshipped, if someone needs to be honored, if someone needs to be thanked or acknowledged or recognized, to me that says more about their ego and insecurity than it does about the worthiness of that person and who they are or what, they're, what they did. God does not need your worship. God is not someone, as my dad wrongfully believed, as someone who sat in heaven as some kind of ego job feeding off the worship and accolation and praise 
of people who fawn at his feet. How my dad came to this distorted idea is probably a story in itself, and it happens all the time in churches all over the globe of every stripe and variety, people not understanding or interpreting correctly what is being done or taught. But what my dad saw was this angry God in heaven who needed as some sycophant to suck off the praise and accolade of people. That is not the picture of God that Jesus shows. Because if you've been paying attention to anything in the Gospel of John, you have seen something that Jesus says again and again and again. What Jesus says is that what is true of me is true of my Father. So that Jesus, when he says, when you see me, what you see is my father. What I teach is from my father. What I do is from my father. I and the father are one, that I am the representation before you of who God the father is. So that when you look at Jesus, what you see is God. And what I love about this story is that when you look at Jesus, what you see is not a God who needs to be worshipped. What you see is a God who is humble. You see a God who washes feet. You see a God who takes off his outer garment and gets down on his knees before you and degrades himself and he washes your feet. That's what Jesus did. That's who God is. Mind you, I'm not trying to say that Jesus is the Father. No, 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 the father did not feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Jesus did, but I'll tell you this. What Jesus did shows us something that's true about the father. It shows us that the father cares for people in need. I'm not meaning to suggest that the father died on the cross. No, Jesus died on the cross. But what I do mean to suggest is that by seeing Jesus die on the cross, we see a father in heaven who is willing to sacrifice all for you. And I'm not here to suggest that the Father in heaven is literally going to come down and wash your feet. But what I am here to suggest is that the Father in heaven is not one who sucks off the praise of others to his own glory and self-aggrandizement. He is a God who is humble by nature. A God who lowers himself before others. It's a very radically different picture of God than what my dad had, isn't it? And it's Jesus' last will and testament. Have you ever been to one of these, like one of these readings of a last will and testament? Anyone ever go to like one of these? I sure haven't, but I think it would be really cool. I've seen it on TV enough that I really want to experience it, you know? Not anytime soon and not with someone I really love, but some strange uncle that you never heard of or something like that, you know? 
I mean, my gosh, here at Fellowship of Faith, we've been talking until we're blue in the face about like wills and trusts and powers of attorney and seminars that we're doing. That's about preparing these kinds of things. But one of the kind of elements that I really like about it and the way that we're doing here, the people who are kind of hosting these for us are doing here, is they're going, your life is about more than your money. Is your last will and testament really just what you do with your stuff? And they put a lot of emphasis on something else instead. What is the final witness you want to leave behind? What are the final words you want to say? What do you want to write down for your family to know and remember you by according to that which is most important to you? And that's what Jesus is doing in this story. He's gathering with his disciples, and he knows he's going to die. This is it, guys. We're not going back. And yeah, I know you're saying he's going to raise from the dead, but you know, it's never the same afterwards. He raises from the dead, but it's not the deep soak with his disciples like he has on this side of the cross. This is it. And what do you say when this is it? I mean, for crying out loud, you're... You're Jesus Christ. I mean, what, everything you say has like merit and value. Would you agree? When you're Jesus Christ, how do you choose your last words to say? That's what John is giving us here in chapters 13 through 16. And do you know what Jesus chooses to say in his last will and testament? Remember me by, and remember what it means to be a disciple of me by. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. It's what Jesus wants you to know about God. The picture and perspective he wants you to have for God, the kind of God he is. And it's the very same picture he wants you to have for yourself. Here's the whole thing again. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also do what? Jesus set an example for you that you should do as he has done for you. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, really, 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 no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. You're not greater than Jesus, are you? <laughs> Even if you believe it, you don't know how to answer that one, do you? <laughs> I promise you, you're not. And if you are not greater than Jesus, and Jesus is willing to humble himself to wash feet, how about you who claim to follow him? How are you getting down on your knees and degrading yourself for the benefit and blessing of another. That's what he's saying. I don't know how you need to do it, but I bet you do. You can work out the implications of this. How is Jesus calling you to wash someone else's feet? Because make no mistake, that's what he wants you to remember. It's in his last will and testament. It is among the final words that he has to say. This is how you, especially you, 
who call yourself my disciples, it's how you're called to live. Because that's the kind of God we serve. And no servant of God is greater than God himself. And so if God does it, so do we. There's a second thing that Jesus also says, and I just don't want it to escape us this morning. He also says this, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. See, what Jesus is also revealing here, and he does with Peter, is Peter kind of wrestles back going, God, Jesus, Christ, how can you, how can you degrade yourself like this before me? It doesn't make sense. He's like, no, Peter, you gotta understand, you need to be clean. And then Peter starts to get it. He's like, oh, okay, so wash all of me. No, not quite, Peter, let me walk you through it. Here's what Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Your sin is a stain before God. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Your sin is a barrier between us. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. As Paul will write in in an epistle, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 20 seconds of honest reflection in your life will reveal that to you. But Jesus has come to make you clean. No, no, he hasn't come to wash your feet because they're really grody and, 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 and they stink and because you haven't changed your socks in a while. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a stain that we carry. That no matter how hard we scrub in this world to get off, just seems to be a part of us. And Jesus says, I have come by my blood to make you clean. But if I don't wash you, it ain't never coming off. It's an invitation from a God who humbles himself to make you clean. Because where all of this is leading is to the ultimate act of foot washing with Jesus being nailed on a cross and his blood spewing out for you, humiliating and degrading himself, for you suffering and dying to make you clean. Because copying Jesus is not what it's about. Learning good life patterns and principles is not the core. No, the core is, as Jesus will put it, being washed and made new. He said this earlier in John. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless I wash you. You have no part of me, because Jesus likes to go to the core through everything that each of us need from God to be cleansed of our sin before him and be brought back to life through him. There is no life without forgiveness of sins, but being washed clean of our sins without new life just leaves you a clean corpse 
but Christ comes to do both. And in his final words to his disciples, he wants to make sure you remember it. Live by these words. Ingest them and make them a part of you. They are so important to Jesus that he selected them above many other things he could say is his final will and testament that night. So I'd like to pray. We'll go with a blessing. We'll sing a a final song together. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'll invite you to rise, if you would, with me. And I want you, in this moment as we pray, to entertain a visual. Some people pray like this, on their knees. Some will prostrate themselves, laying flat out in obeisance before him as a sign of humility before God, right? It's why we do it. But here as we stand, Is it a sign that God is doing that right now at your feet? Lord God, you have humbled yourself before us, even the least of these, we who don't deserve it, we who are not worthy of honor, or praise we who are not worthy of worship. You, the Lord of heaven, came down, took off your outer garment, wrapped a towel around your waist, and lowered yourself before your disciples' feet. As a man today striving to be your disciple, I don't know how I feel about that, God. It makes me uncomfortable. It's not right that even as I stand here to think that you might be bowed before me, no, I don't like it. But that's what you've done. That is what you did for your disciples and is what you did on a cross. And I just pray, God, that that made that change me. May that strip me of every ounce of ego and arrogance. God, may it challenge every root of entitlement that lives within me. Oh God, I pray, help me, change me to see life in this world through your eyes, to understand the humble nature of who you are and knowing that, that I am so far beneath you. 
in essence, to do the same. Teach us to be a people who wash feet. I pray for those gathered today who are stained, stained deeply. I pray, God, you give them the hope that you are a God who can wash out any stain to make us clean. Cleanse us and we will be clean. Wash us and we will be whiter than snow. Purify the pollution of our heart and our lives. God, may your words and your actions on that night define define us today. I don't know what more to say than thank you. How, how do we show our gratefulness to you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. And we pray. Amen. May God bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God of heaven look upon you with favor and may he give you peace.